Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. One of the uh, great privileges of being a pastor is you get to visit people sometimes, sometimes in very difficult situations, sometimes in rather amusing situations. This story I'm going to use to introduce our passage for us this morning was somewhat amusing, though surprising, I suppose. I'd gone to visit a man at the request of his wife in their home uh, one Sunday afternoon. It was a beautiful day. I remember it quite clearly. And we were talking together, he and I, about various matters and just being polite and having a cup of tea or coffee or whatever it was that they did then, you know. And um, he said to me something that I really didn't expect as we were just uh, sort of turning the corner towards actually talking about substantial things over our, over our drinks and uh, a few snacks together. He said this, he said, uh, you know, uh, you see, I am a Christian already, so I don't need to go to church. Now, this was the first time I'd come across such a statement. It just kind of flummoxed me. It didn't seem to make any sense, but I've come across that a number of times since in various forms. You know, I've prayed the sinner's prayer, and therefore I've had enough church, you know, for my life. And I wonder whether, as I hear that uh, idea, whether what's behind it is very similar uh, to what's behind uh, the passage we're looking at this morning. You see, in those days when John was writing, there was this group called the Gnostics, and uh, they were trying to sort of open up spirituality so that it didn't really depend upon Jesus, born the Christ. It could be much broader than that. And indeed, it didn't really necessarily depend upon the church. And so if you look at chapter 2, verse 19, you'll see that they'd gone out from us, uh, John says. That is, they'd left the fellowship. They didn't need the church anymore. And these people were saying that it didn't really matter how much they uh, did things that those Christians and their judgmental attitude might say was wrong. Uh, They could live in darkness, according to those judgmental Christians, because after all they had fellowship with God, you see, and they didn't need to go to church because after all they had fellowship with God. They were spiritual already. They prayed the sinner's prayer. They were done with church. They'd have as much church as they needed for the rest of their lives. As I say, I've come across this idea a number of times uh, uh, since that conversation, 
It's almost as if people think that uh, Christian commitment is a form of life insurance, you know. You buy the policy and you are all set and that's it. And what John is saying here is behind this wrong idea is actually not so much a, a, a confusion about sort of practical matters, though that of course is there, but really a confusion about who God is. It's a theological matter. Who, who, the nature of God specifically. Uh, theology, the study of God, you see, who God is. And so John is famous in this letter for a little bit later in the letter saying God is love. And that is a famous statement that you'll see everywhere and people are very familiar with and is a true and wonderful statement and you can see it on billboards on highways and everything else. And however much uh, it may be a little dumbed down by its over-familiarity, it's a true statement. Yet, that's not all John says about God. God is love, he says later. But here, he says, God is light. You don't hear that. That is, God is holy. He is true. Light in the biblical understanding of the word means illumination of truth and shining brightness of righteousness. He's holy and true. God is light. And in fact, the, the Greek for this verse is really very emphatic. You might literally put it something like this. Darkness in him, there is not none at all. Not very good English grammar, but... He's, he's emphasizing it. He's underlining it. Darkness in him, no none. And see, I think that that person who said to me that they prayed the sinner's prayer or they, they were a Christian, therefore they didn't need to go to church, had probably heard that God is love. I very much doubt they had heard that God is light. You see. And yet that is a great statement about God. And if we understand that message, what it means is we want to walk in the light. And so we walk with others who want to walk in the light. And so we don't leave the fellowship. We're a part of the fellowship. If, if he had heard that statement and understood it, he would have been at church every Sunday, I think. And so that's John's theme here. God is light, therefore walk in the light together in the fellowship of God. And he, uh, he amplifies that theme here in this wonderful passage before us that we had so well read out. Beautiful words we have in the Bible here. He amplifies it for us in three ways. And those ways are conduct first, and let's look at that from verses 5 to 7. As you look down there, you'll see that the first of the full statements of these Gnostics, John is sort of quoting. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness. Now, probably, we don't know, but probably that was something the Gnostics were saying. We can have fellowship with God and still walk in what you think is darkness, but actually we know better. And John says, well, if we say that, quotes, have fellowship with God while walking in the darkness, end quote, then we lie and do not practice the truth. We're not actually doing the truth. It's a wonderful biblical way of thinking about truth. Intellectual things are always practical. You do not do the truth. You do not practice the truth. It always has to affect your behavior. God is light, therefore walk in the light. What were they saying? They were saying something like this, don't be legalistic. You don't need to keep all those rules. Oh, we, we, you, know, you have fellowship with God now. But John is saying it's a lie and a dangerous lie, for God is light as well as love, holy. 
Now, of course, uh, John is very quick in verse 7, having made that point strongly under conduct, to immediately come back and guard against a misunderstanding. And so he says very quickly in verse 7 that, uh, well, perfection is not possible in this life for the godly Christian even. And so he reminds us very quickly, verse 7, the blood of Jesus on the, shed on the cross has cleansed us, purifies us from all sins. I want you to look at that verse and understand it, for it is in the present tense, and it is all. In other words, it is past, present, and future. When you become a Christian, all your sins are covered, past, present, and future, purifies, cleanses. And so this idea that some people have that, you know, maybe they've done something wrong a few minutes ago and they haven't had a chance to say sorry to God and if they're hit by a bus and they go to hell rather than heaven is wrong. Past, present, and future, it purifies the whole lot, all of it. It's all covered under the atoning work of Christ, the message we celebrate uh, this morning. But John is saying here that uh, while he's guarded against that misunderstanding, nonetheless, the person who truly has become a Christian who truly has fellowship with God, will walk in the light. Why? Because it's about who God is. God is light. Uh, My friends, let no one tell you that theology does not matter. Have you heard that? Oh, I don't need all that theology. I just want to be practical. Big mistake. You've got to have theology for all wrong practices and all right practices come out of an understanding of who God is and who God is not. And so here he says, God is light, therefore... Those who know God, who are partners with God, who have fellowship with God, have koinonia with God, they also must walk in the light. It's inevitable. Now, is there a particular issue at stake here? Yes, there is. It seems that it's not so much sort of little moral failures that John has in mind. It's this issue of fellowship with other Christians. And so you can see that again in verse 7. We have fellowship with one another. John probably has that particular issue in mind, those who felt superior and therefore no longer needed to be in the fellowship because they, you know, they, they got it all already. You know, you poor old-fashioned Christians going to church every Sunday, all the things you're missing out on, you could have a good sleep in on Sunday morning, have a nice long brunch. I can see some people thinking here, well, that sounds good. Don't you realize you can be spiritual without being religious? You heard that phrase? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Well, I know what people mean by that, and in some ways I want to say yes to that. We don't want to be religious in the sense of bound by legalism and false ideas and just sort of regimented formalism. No, but spiritual without being with other spiritual people? John's saying that's just a misunderstanding. It's wrong. No, if you are spiritual, you will have fellowship with other people who are spiritual. If you know God who is light, you will walk in the light with other people who know God is the light. It's inevitable. And so that that old idea from the 1970s, I think it was Keith Green, those of you who maybe wore flares once will remember him. And uh, his music still sometimes played, I think, and sort of nether regions of old-fashioned 1970s culture, you know. Keith Green used to say um, something like this, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, which is true and, uh, you know, a wonderful statement. Just coming through that door doesn't make you saved, of course. 
But, but John is guarding against a misunderstanding of that. He's saying, if you have fellowship with God, you will have fellowship with God's people. If you are a Christian, you are by definition a part of the Christian people, that is, the church. It's a diagnostic he's using here. He brings it home a little later more strongly when he gets to chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they never were really a part of us. So if someone is not part of a biblical church in some regular true fashion, then they're probably not a Christian in the same way that, you know, if you want to find a, a Big Mac, you probably do go to McDonald's, you know, not to Wendy's or, you know, whatever else you might take your fashion, perhaps slightly more sophisticatedly, college church people. I don't know. See, John is not even saying a true statement, which is, it's really healthy for you spiritually to go to church. That's true. Chapel's not enough. You need to go to church. Bible study in a small coffee shop at Starbucks is not enough. You need to go to church. It's healthy for you spiritually. That is a true statement. That's not what John is saying here only. He's not just saying, you know, get healthy physically, go to the gym, get healthy spiritually, turn up to church regularly. No, he's saying it is inevitable. If you have fellowship with God, you will have fellowship with other people who have fellowship with God. That's, that's the way it's going to be. And then it becomes a diagnostic for him as he goes through John's letter. People who love God love God's people. Now, we don't always love them perfectly because some of God's people are harder to love than others, right? And they probably think you're harder to love than others, you know. But we love God's people if we love God. And so conduct, walking in the light. Well, that moves very rapidly to the next point here, which John emphasizes, which is confession. Verses 8 to 10. You can look down with me at these wonderful words here before us in our Bibles. And you'll see that John is countering the second and third of the three false claims that the Gnostics were making. They'd said, uh, if we say you have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, no, John says, you can't do that because God is light. But then they're also making two other uh, false statements, both of which were in one way or another claims to be completely, practically sinless. Now you think, who on earth thinks that? Well, they did and people today do. Let me explain why. You see, inevitably, once you say your conduct does not need to be in the light, then you have to say that your state is actually fine as it is. In other words, you have to make excuses for how you actually behave. Otherwise, it doesn't fit together, and so you begin to deceive yourself. And so verse 8, what are they, they saying? They were saying they have no sin, and they're also saying, verse 10, they have not sinned. They're very similar statements, probably slightly different. The first is a claim that your nature, your state is not sinful, have no sin. And the second is a slightly different uh, statement that comes from that first one, which is that you actually haven't done anything wrong. You're not actually committing practically sins. You have not sinned. You say, well, does anyone say that today? Oh, yeah, they do. Uh, David Jackman, in his very helpful uh, commentary uh, on this book, uh, goes a couple of what were then when he wrote it, I think, common examples and are still now fairly common. Uh, it's not adultery. I'm just having an affair. 
That was one example he gave. Another one is, it's not stealing, it's just a perk of my job. We make excuses. We have actually not sinned, we're saying. Or one I sometimes heard, oh, no, I'm not lying, I'm not deceiving anyone. It's just a white lie necessary for something better. I'm not saying these are easy uh, paths to negotiate. I'm saying that we tend to deny the conviction of the Spirit, don't we, in our own humanness. But more subtly still, the first statement, have not sinned, is actually a statement about nature. And so there are theologians who say, you know, really original sin has become the term for this kind of idea. is just a fantasy. It's, not, it's made up. You don't need to believe that. I don't actually have sin originally. It's not in my nature. And some even go further, of course, and said, well, they've attained sinless perfection. There have been Christians who've done that. The story is told of Charles Spurgeon, poor Charles Spurgeon. So many apocryphal stories have been told in his name. Uh, He was a funny guy, wasn't he, I think. And uh, he met a man, apparently, who had made such a claim that he was didn't have a sinful nature and therefore had now attained sinless perfection. He invited him home for dinner. He was fascinated by him. And as they talked over dinner, Spurgeon apparently, it is said, picked up a jug of water and threw the contents all over the man. When the man acted as, you know, you and I would predictably act in such a situation, (laughs) Spurgeon is said to have looked at him and said, Ah, I see the old man is not dead. A little bit of water revived him. (laughs) And so we we fool ourselves in church life, don't we? Perhaps we don't commit adultery, but we harbor bitterness or jealousy. But even in our society at large, we make the same claim. People are not basically bad, we're told. They're basically good. Despite the evidence of our eyes, people want to believe that, don't they? And so they keep on preaching it to themselves in one way or another. And so our solution to our troubles in our world is not not that we need a savior of our souls. The solution is we need to be true to ourselves. Why? Because we're basically good. In other words, all you need to do to solve the problems of the world is is to educate people properly, put them in the right environment, and because they're basically good, they will flourish. No, they won't. They'll just become sophisticated in their evil. And what is the answer to all this, both in the church and at the world? The answer to all this is this beautiful confession. Saying what is true about ourselves before God. And that, of course, is verse 9, which is John's solution that he uh, juxtaposes between the two false statements. In verse verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all sins unrighteousness. Now, this is an important verse, well-known, often memorized, sometimes misunderstood. Let me break it down for us. One, this is a private confession, a private confession. Now, it is true that Jesus taught that when we offend a brother or sister, we should go immediately to that brother or sister and make good and uh, uh, not just apologize, but ask for forgiveness and do what we can to make up for it by application. That is Good teaching. And James, in his letter, makes the same point. When we've offended someone, we should go to that person and ask for forgiveness of our sin. 
not just apologize, but say, that was wrong, I sinned against you, would you forgive me? And when someone does that to you, you need to be humble enough to say, yes, I forgive you. That is certainly true. But here, John is talking of sins that are private. Not, against another, not an offense against another Christian, but a private sin against God. Of course, all sins are somewhere against God. But this is a private sin, and John is saying it must be dealt with privately. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, says this about this verse and how it is being misunderstood sometimes. He says this. But neither here nor anywhere else in Scripture will you find any teaching that tells you that you are not walking in the light unless you are all the time exposing all your sins to everybody. I've heard lots of teaching that comes close to saying that. But no, this is a private confession. It's one of the distinctives of the gospel that we don't need to go through any person in order to receive forgiveness. We go straight to God. It's a private confession. It is a particular confession. You see, it's our sins. It's not just generally saying, oh God, you know that no one is perfect and nor am I. It's naming our sins in His presence. Particular. Not just generally that we are sinners. Oh Lord, I have done this. Oh Lord, I have harbored this anger unrighteously. Oh Lord, I am sorry, would you forgive me? And as we do that, so often we're convicted of sins behind sins. Oh Lord, so often I want it to be my will, not your will to be done. Would you help me to believe that what you want for me is good? As we do that, it is so freeing. And that, of course, is John's uh, third point under this verse, which I say in this way, it is effective. That is, it's the good results. Now, again, as I said before, it's not like you need to say this every time that you sin, otherwise you're going to go to hell, you know, because your sins, if you're a Christian, if you come to Jesus, if you've been filled with His Spirit, you've been born again, if you've made that profession of faith, are covered once for all. It cleanses, it purifies, past, present, and future. But as a Christian, as a child of God, to enjoy His presence, you need to keep short accounts. And so it is because of His faithfulness and justice. If you're a child of God, this will characterize you, this confession. If you never confess this way, then you will go to hell unless you confess your sins to God. That's certainly true. But as a child of God, you come to him with freedom because of his faithfulness and justice. And John then appeals back to the nature of God. Do you see what he's saying? God is faithful and just. That is, he is love and he is light. That means he will forgive us and cleanse us. Why does that work like that? He is faithful. That is his covenant word. I think probably behind it is the the Hebrew Old Testament idea of chesed, his covenant word faithfulness, that is, His promises to His people are sure and unchanging. Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far shall I remove your sins from you. He is faithful to that promise. It has been achieved in Christ once for all at the cross. He is faithful. Don't let anyone tell you any different. He is just. Now you say, how, how does that help me? <laughs> well, here's how this works, the glorious truth that we proclaim from the pulpit and celebrate this morning. 
goes like this, our sins require justice and justice is fully taken in Christ, in his just sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. Justice is satisfied. He is faithful and just. I'm not just pretending I'm going to be okay. God is love. But because God is light, all his justice is taken at Christ at the cross. It's effective. As I apply that truth to my life, when I sin again, I can be freed from the sense of guilt and condemnation. I was thinking in between services how to illustrate this sense of exuberance that I think can come to us as Christians. And this is the story that came to mind of one of my children. If you have a child, perhaps you know that there is this thing called nurse-made elbow that you can get as a young child. Your ligaments are not that well attached, and so it can be possible to actually dislocate your elbow. One of our children had this, and it was, our, it was early on in our parenting days, so we weren't quite sure what it was. And Finally, we decided to take him to the hospital, and whoever was on duty at the hospital at the time said, don't worry, it's nurse-made elbow, I'll deal with it. So there's my, my child, and, and the child is sitting there looking miserable, fitting miserable, unable to move their arm, and then this, this doctor does this funny motion with the arm where they come and do this, you know? And then everything's okay, and my child kind of goes like this, and then he gets down off the bed, and he's pretty young at the time, he's probably two or something like that, he's just beginning to walk, and then he runs up and down the aisle going like this, yes, yes, yes! It's effective. Yes. He heals my sins. My broken heart can be made whole. Yes. Confession. And then thirdly, confidence. Of course, this uh, leads on and John makes it clear it connects. So this is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. John notes two points here and illustrates the second point in two ways. First, he reaffirms his goal and intention. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 cannot be used to excuse loose living. Someone once said to me, oh, it doesn't matter if I sin, I'll just 1 John 1, verse 9 it. Oh, no. It matters. I write this so that you may not sin. One of the signs of being a Christian is that you realize that sin is sinful, that evil is evil. That is, that it's bad, that you don't want it, that dark is dark. So be careful if you think like that. It's not a good sign of your spiritual state. Confess your sins and come to God. It matters. It does not excuse loose living. Now, there's a balance here. We need to hold intention. On the one hand, we are to resist the devil's lie that says that you cannot go back to God and say, I've done the same thing all over again. God, it's me again and it's that again. You can go back to God and say that. You're a sinner and that means that you sin. That's no news to God. If you confess, you will receive his forgiveness. It is effective on the one hand. On the other hand, such confidence is not to be used as a license to carelessness about sin. So how do those two things go together? Well, it goes like this. The closer you get to the light, the more you grow in your Christian life, actually, the more you'll see your own darkness. The closer you get to the light, the more it will shine. And when you were confessing obvious sins, when you were a young Christian, you'll confess attitudes of heart. And you'll become more aware of your own darkness and at the same time more aware of your joyful freedom in Christ despite that darkness. 
And so the greatest saints live like this. They live with exuberance and joy and their freedom and a sense at the same time, as the Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Because I'm the chief of sinners, I'm the most joyful because I've been forgiven my sins. That's how it works. His next point, though, is to underline our confidence before God as Christians so we can be free from the accuser, the devil that whispers that we're making no progress and getting nowhere. No, that's not true. He underscores that point using two images. First of an advocate and the other a propitiation. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Two images, two ways of explaining how actually that devil who whispers that we're making no progress and getting nowhere can be answered. Advocate. What does that mean? It means someone who speaks in our defense. So here's the picture that I see. Jesus stands up and says this. He is mine. She is mine. I paid the price. Be gone, Satan's accusation. Be gone, foul guilt. I am his and her advocate. That's the kind of confidence a Christian can have because of Jesus as his advocate. But Jesus is not just the advocate. He's also the second picture here, the second reality, the propitiation. Now, those of us who are theologically learned will know that there was once much discussion about the right translation of this word because of the opinion of some theologians in the mid-20th century that to emphasize propitiation, a word which means God taking his wrath in Christ, they felt that to emphasize that made God seem like a vain, angry, petty, pagan God who's losing his temper. But that's to mistake the biblical idea of God's wrath and to mistake John's meaning by this word, as other theologians have more recently shown. No, God's anger, his wrath, is not about him losing his temper. It is God's set opposition because he is light to all that is dark. So that is a, a truth in the Bible, a truth about God. And John says, it is propitiated. God himself in Christ takes the wrath. So here's the picture I see. John is saying, as it were, that Jesus stands up and says, that anger that wells up in all heaven to pour forth upon you, that has all every bit being taken by my propitiatory sacrifice. God is love, God is light, both are met at the cross. You are free. And with such confidence, John concludes with a vision, a vision beyond mere churchiness to the whole global situation, the whole world. Also for the sins of the whole world, he says, uh, verse 2. Now, this is not universalism, the idea that everyone is saved, for then that would make a mockery of what John says elsewhere, that there are those who live in darkness and those who have gone out from us because they do not belong to us. John does not think that everyone is saved. What he is saying is this world by which John normally means the world in rebellion, the evil world system inside us and our fallenness outside us, that is repressing us, the evil world system, John is saying that this sacrifice of Jesus is not just good news for us church people, but for all people on the face of the planet, every color, 
every race, Vietnam, the DR, Kenya, every tongue, tribe, and nation. So this confidence wells up to evangelism and mission to bless the world. And it all comes out of rightly understanding who God is. Yes, he is love. He is also light. Therefore, walk in the light. What does that mean? It means conduct. It means confession. And it means confidence. Let's pray together. Let's have a moment to confess our sins before God. Perhaps you are here this morning as someone who grew up in the church and you've tried all your life to be very religious and yet you're conscious that you have failed. Would you take on this glorious message as being preached to you personally? That if you confess your sins, it can all the guilt can be dealt with. Perhaps you're someone who is very active in the church here. And yet there are, like for everyone, there are things which you know are not right in your heart from time to time. Things you do from time to time that you know are not right. And perhaps you're so scared about that, you cover that up with denial. Would you take this opportunity to uh, speak the truth to God about yourself and about your sins? For if you do, you will receive that glorious confidence of a child of God. He is faithful and just forgive and cleanse perhaps uh, you wonder what all this has to do with all the poor people in the world people who have not heard about Jesus the people who are oppressed or treated badly would you take this message and give you confidence that it is not just for us, but for the whole world. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.